and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We're working our way through the, the book of Genesis. Uh, we've read the creation account that we have in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. We've read of the fall in Genesis 3. Uh, we've continually come back to Genesis 3.15, where God, uh, after the fall, as he pronounces the curse, begins with the serpent, and to the serpent, he says that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between uh, each of their offspring, and that there's an offspring coming through the seed of the woman who will destroy the serpent and destroy death and deliver his people. We've since then begun to see this Genesis 3.15 unfold. That enmity that God said he would put between them erupts immediately between Cain and Abel, resulting in Cain's murder of Abel. Then we read about Cain's line, an ungodly line, a line that is focused entirely on themselves, on making their own name great, entirely focused on their own uh, joy and comfort uh, in rebellion against God, continuing to live in ways that are contrary to his revealed will and to the, the patterns that God had established. And then we read about God appointing a replacement for Abel. He gives Seth, and then we, we read about Seth's line, a godly line in which Enoch is, is caught up into heaven with God, and Lamech recognizes in his son the potential of the fulfillment of God's promise as he says of Noah, this one will deliver us from the curse. Uh, and so we, we go all the way through to Noah and his sons at the end of chapter 5. And that brings us up to chapter 6 here. Uh, and in chapter 6, we're going to see a, a significant transition uh, in terms of the narrative. Uh, some themes are going to continue, but we move from individual stories for just a bit into a description of mankind. Uh, Genesis 6 and these first eight verses, uh, one of my commentators says it's the most difficult passage in Genesis. Uh, it is ripe for conspiracy theory and all kinds of strange ideas. And I'm going to disappoint you this morning because we're not going to focus on all the crazy ideas out there about how to read these verses. I have been encouraged to do a, a podcast episode on these verses where we can kind of uh, spread out a little bit and stretch our legs and, and focus on some of these details and various ideas. And I'm sure we'll do that in the fall when we, we pick that series back up. But as we read this morning, there are some big ideas that regardless of how we, we choose to interpret the particulars, these big ideas remain, and that is mankind's greatest weakness, his greatest uh, uh, problem is sin. Mankind's greatest problem is sin. We're going to see that God's just response to sin is death. God's just response to sin is death. And finally, God will not abandon his plan or his people. God will not abandon his plan or his people. Let me re uh, pray, and then we'll read the text this morning. Fathers, we come to your word, we pray that you would open our eyes, uh, open our ears. Father, that we would be a people eager to, uh, to seek your face in the, the words of this text and that your spirit would be at work in the reading and preaching of it. Father, we pray uh, that you would make us all the more eager for Christ to return, uh, that you would make our hearts all the more tender for the lost, uh, that this morning as we consider the greatest problem, your response to that problem in judgment and salvation, that we would be encouraged and built up. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, 
The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the Son of God, sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning, uh, the significant, uh, more significant part of the passage in terms of its volume is focused on man's sinfulness. Mankind's greatest problem is sin. The passage is clearly focused on this. Uh, the intermarriage of these two lines, a great deal of the debate about this passage is on the identity of the sons of God. Uh, and, uh, and I will pull the curtain back just a little bit on my work this week. Uh, I understand that these two lines, the sons of God and the daughters of men, to be the two lines that we've just finished reading about in the previous chapters, the offspring of Cain and the offspring of Seth. Uh, a godly line, if you will remember, and an ungodly line, a, a line of people living in the, uh, the covenant promises, living in confidence in those promises, and a line of people who are in rebellion against God. And what we see happening in these, uh, this opening verse is these two lines coming together, uh, intermarrying. Uh, it's consistent with what we see later, isn't it, in the Law of Moses? Uh, where God says to his people Israel, you're not to marry uh, into the nations around you uh, and to be uh, drawn off uh, to worship their gods in rebellion against me. And that's what we see happening here, these two lines intermarrying, and the result is sin and the spread of sin. And so we have the intermarriage of these two lines. We see the result of this intermarriage is an offspring that are concerned with making their own name great. Look at, uh, at verse 4. It describes the offspring of this intermarriage as the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Uh, the men of renown there, literally in the Hebrew, men of name. Uh, that is men who have become famous, who have made a name for themselves. And in the context of these verses, this is clearly an act of rebellion. God, if you'll recall all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, and gave them this instruction, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in the context of that, that creation account, we understand that it wasn't just a command to fill the earth with people, but a command to fill the earth with those who would worship God. They were to fill the earth with worshipers. And yet God, who looked at his creation and says he saw that it was very good, here the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. They have filled the world with offspring who are making their name great rather than filling the world with offspring who will make the name of God great. 
There's a, a cryptic reference to the Nephilim where we're told nothing else about them except that they were in the world at this point and afterwards as well. But the word Nephilim uh, comes from the root, which is to be the fallen ones. Uh, and I think we can safely say that without getting any more particular in our interpretation there, that's not a good thing. Uh, the fallen ones were in the world. This is the state of mankind in the creation that God has made. They are, all of them, in rebellion against God. Sin is portrayed in these verses almost like a contagion that spreads. The, the world is filled with sin, and it just keeps infecting more and more until the world is filled with worshipers of self. This is also illustrated in the Law of Moses. In the Law of Moses, you'll remember that when it comes to the worship of God, there are laws upon laws about the importance, the necessity of being ritually clean and all of the different ways that you can become unclean and all of the work that is required in order to be made ritually clean once again. And in that system... God has so designed it that no unclean thing can make another thing clean. That in fact, when something that is clean is touched by something that is not clean, the clean thing becomes unclean. This is the, the effect of sin in the world. Sin does not go out into the world and, uh, and result in making things better. Instead, everywhere that sin goes, it destroys it brings chaos and wickedness and destruction. Sin is a mess that only makes things messier. And all mankind is, is caught up in this. No one is excused. Paul makes this clear in Romans 5, 12. He says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin is not only extensive, that is, not only is the world filled with sin, but each sinner is full of sin. It is intensive as well. Look at verse 5. In one of the most extreme examples of piling up words to make a point, verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, I have to stop and take a breath, was only evil continually. The picture that we're being given here of the state of the world is one in which all are sinners and everyone is caught up in this sin completely. It's not just all that the thoughts are evil, but that mankind's thoughts, desires, intentions, his entire inner life is corrupted. Clearly, sin has corrupted the whole human race and filled the earth. Why is this a problem? Why is this mankind's greatest problem? Uh, several things. First, because we were created for a purpose. When something's created for a purpose and it, it will not function to that end, it, it doesn't do the thing it was made to do, we typically describe it as broken. We typically think of it as useless. We, we mankind, were created for a purpose given a mission in the world to fill the world with worshipers of God. The pervasiveness of sin 
means that we are not doing what we were made to do. This is the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? End. What is our purpose? What is everything driving towards? When we are made perfect, what will we be? We will be those who glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that is precisely the opposite of what we see in the text this morning. As we'll see in a minute, sin is mankind's greatest problem because God has declared His judgment against it, and that judgment is death. Sin is an existential problem. Life and death are at stake. And so what do we do with this? First of all, we need to place the sin problem in its proper place and perspective. That is to stop minimizing sin. Unbelievers will minimize sin by arguing that they are basically good people. Sins then become some sort of exception or aberration to the way they normally are. As Christians, we run the risk of minimizing sin by just very, very easily tucking it into the finished work of Christ. We're, we take sin too lightly. I'm forgiven. It's okay. I know that I can repent and it'll be fine. And too easily we give ourselves over to sin. But Christian, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We are those whose eyes have been opened to the truth. We know we're called to live in this world as followers of Christ, in obedience to God, worshiping Him, dying to self, raising up children who know God and worship God. Sin is contrary to this calling. It's contrary to who we are in Christ. Our sin and guilt has been put away by Christ, but that is not a license to sin. We see Paul speaking this way in Romans 6, don't we? Uh, having made the, the clear case of the, 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 the infinite bounty of the grace of God towards sinners, he then anticipates the response, well, then shouldn't we sin all the more? If, if I sin and I get grace, and grace is a good thing, shouldn't I sin more to get grace more? And Paul's argument, his answer is not only no, not only a very strong no, but he roots that no, he, he, he grounds that no in our identity in Christ. Don't you know that's not who you are, Paul says? Don't you know you've been buried with Christ? Don't you know that you'll be raised with Him? Don't give your members over to, to sin as slaves to sin, but to righteousness as slaves to righteousness. And so, brothers and sisters, one of the things that we see in the text this morning is how seriously God takes sin, how pervasive sin is, how contrary sin is to those of us who know Christ, to a life lived in Christ and for Christ. For those who have not put their faith and trust in Christ this morning, sin is not a problem you can overcome on your own. That's a, another element of just the, the weight of these verses, of just how pervasive sin is, and how when the godly line and the ungodly line come together, the result is not a new godly line, but the pervasiveness of that ungodliness spreading out into all of the world. Sin is not a problem that you can overcome on your own. It has and will continue to overwhelm you. You cannot do enough good to overcome, to make up for the sin in your hearts and minds and in your hands and feet, so to speak, as you go about living in the world. You need someone else 
to address this sin for you. That brings us to our second point this morning. God's just response to sin is death. God's response to the problem in Genesis 6 is to blot out mankind and all living things. And I think in in our pride, generally, as a human race, we hear this and we bristle. We imagine that that is way overreacting. That God, in His determination to blot out humanity, not only here in Genesis 6, but inasmuch as we know that this is a foreshadowing of the judgment to come, there's a temptation in our hearts to say, yeah, that's a bit much. I mean, everybody's just doing the best they can. But look at what God says. And there's a great deal implicit in what he says here in verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. How is it just for God to declare an end to humanity because of sin? First, because he has the right and the power to execute justice. He is the God who made us. We are his And he not only made us, but he sustains us. You remember at the creation of Adam, Adam is is made from the dust of the earth, but Adam is not a living man until God breathes his spirit into Adam. And that spirit sustains mankind. What God says here in verse 3 is, I am now going to take that spirit. I'm going to take the life that I have given to man. I'm going to take it back. How is it just? It's just because God has the right and the power to execute justice. Mankind is flesh created and enlivened by God. He made us and sustains us. We are His. He declares that He will no longer sustain humanity. But instead, death is pronounced against humanity because of sin. It's just because God has already threatened sin or threatened death, hasn't He? God, from the very beginning, told Adam and Eve that the consequences of sin are death. And even after Cain, uh, his offering is not received. Do you remember how God approaches Cain? Cain, what's the matter? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain knows what it is to do well, and he knows what the consequences are of not doing well. And yet Cain... And his children and the children after him through seven generations continue in rebellion against God until we come to this place in Genesis 6 where the world is filled with those in rebellion against God. God said to Adam, on the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. And in a sense, Adam did die. He died spiritually. But physical death, the sentence against his physical life is, if you will, suspended, and and Adam eventually dies. But here God says, no more suspension. A day is coming when I will execute justice, and that justice will mean death for all mankind. God has already told us that the consequences of sin are death, so that this judgment in Genesis 6 is just 
and the judgment that it anticipates at the end of all things when Christ comes again and sets up thrones, that judgment will be just as well. And it will be just in part because God has said and continues to say in the world throughout history, the end of sin is death. God's just response to sin is death. And God, much like a judge in a courtroom, has brought them to the bar to answer and has he's, he's expressed his judgment, his evaluation. It says that he regretted and grieved and sorrowed. Two things taken together are disastrous for the human race. The truth that we are all sinners and that sin deserves death. And so what do we do with this this morning? If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone, if you are not believing, particularly if you've not grown up in the church, you may not be familiar with the language, but we refer to all of this as the bad news. This is the bad news. We are all sinners deserving death. You, like the rest of mankind in history, are a sinner in rebellion against God, refusing to listen to His Word. Refusing to receive his instruction, you live for yourself rather than for God. You stand under God's judgment. That is the consistent testimony of Scripture. Is that those who are in sin and continue in their sin, who will not trust in Christ, stand under the judgment of God. And you might say, Genesis 6 is ancient history. Come on, we, there's debates about whether this whole flood thing even happened. Look again at Paul in Romans 6.23. This is more than 2,000 years later. For the wages of sin is death. Nothing has changed. Everything we're reading here, though it is historical, it also anticipates. It looks forward to, in a sense, it illustrates for us the reality of a coming final judgment. We'll see in our final point that the good news is that God has provided a means of escape from that coming judgment. Christian, what do we do with this truth that, uh, that God is just in declaring death against sin? Well, first of all, we ought to thank God all the more for delivering us from it. The message that we are sinners in need of salvation is not a message that becomes defunct on the day that you accept Christ as your Savior and place your trust in Him. It is a message, a reality in which we continue to live, not only in, in knowledge, right? We, we continue to know ourselves to be sinner, sinners, but we continue to experience this as we, uh, we, we are tempted and we wrestle and we fight against sin and all too often lose that fight in the world. We ought to be thankful to God, and the, the better we understand the pervasiveness of sin and the justice of God in declaring the death penalty against sin, the richer our thankfulness to God should be for delivering us from it. The other thing that ought to be true of us as believers as we come to understand this and know this more and more, we ought to be filled with pity for the lost. For those who have not heard this truth or not believed it, we ought to be filled with pity for them and a desire 
to tell them about the danger that exists for them, to tell them about the death, the judgment of God that waits for them, but then above all things to tell them about the salvation that God holds out to them in Jesus Christ. We ought to be eager to do this. Listen, in, in the same, same way that a growing knowledge and understanding of just how serious the death is that we have been delivered from ought to cause us to greater and greater thanksgiving. It ought to also bring us to greater and greater desire to tell others both the bad news and the good news. The judgment that God executes against humanity here in the flood as we're going to continue the flood narrative in the coming weeks. Uh, it's a fairly light judgment compared to the judgment that is coming on the last day. It brings us to our final point this morning. God will not abandon his plan or his people. The judgment against humanity was death, but we see two marks of God's grace and patience here in the text. Take a look again at verse 3. Even as he pronounces this judgment, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. We get a glimpse into God's patience, his grace, his mercy, his love. His days shall be 120 years. And now there's some discussion about whether or not this describes the typical age of a person going forward. Uh, you'll recall in the previous chapters, uh, we get the descriptions of, of the, the ancestors, the offspring of, of Cain and Seth living fantastic ages. Uh, and here is where lives, lifespans are limited. But I don't believe that's the best reading of the text. Uh, I believe that what is happening, what God is declaring here, is that there will be 120 more years of this sin and rebellion and wickedness before the judgment of death that he has declared is brought down upon mankind. 120 years. 120 years in which, as we'll read next week, Noah is busy building an ark, declaring the truth. We're told elsewhere that Noah preached the gospel as, uh, as he's building the ark. 120 years for mankind to repent. But as we'll see, there is no repentance. God will not abandon his plan or his people. We see, secondly, uh, this note of grace in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That statement's going to be fully unpacked in the coming narrative as God delivers Noah and his family from this judgment, the flood. And so twice here in the text, a text filled with a statement of the seriousness and pervasiveness of sin and God's determination to bring his wrath and judgment against that sin, we see these, these, two, uh, these two brief insights into the patience of God, the grace and mercy of God. Notice that Noah is not set apart because he's deserving, not deserving of judgment. Uh, what, what happens with Noah here is not that God managed to find one sinless person in the world. So Noah, not being worthy of judgment, is delivered from the curse. But instead, Noah is plucked out of it. Uh, do you see the, the, the pervasiveness we've been talking about of sin is declared against all mankind? I'm not suggesting that Noah was not particularly righteous. The evidence suggests that he was. Uh, it'll say at the beginning of next week's text in verse 9, Noah walked with God, which is the phrase that was used with Enoch in the previous chapter. But Noah is not sinless. Noah is deserving of the same judgment that God has declared. 
Noah is not excused from the judgment, but is delivered from the judgment. This is a solid reading of the text because we're going to see this pattern in redemptive history over and over again, and, and perhaps nowhere as clearly as in the greatest work of salvation in the Old Testament, the Exodus, and particularly the Passover, that last plague. God says, I'm going to destroy the firstborn in all of the houses in Egypt. And he doesn't, in that statement, excuse Israel. Israel is every bit as deserving of the judgment that is about to fall on the Egyptian households as the Egyptians are, but they are God's people. And so God says to them, put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts so that the, the angel of death, as he passes through the streets of Egypt on that night, passes over the homes in which are those who are believing, trusting in God. They're guilty, deserving of judgment, but delivered. God will not abandon his plan or his people. It's such an important aspect of this morning's text. God promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, as we said earlier, between their offspring God promised that there would be one born, and that promise appeared to be threatened when the godly son was murdered. It appears to be threatened here as the godly line is consumed. God comes and says of the sin that it deserves death, and he's going to wipe out all mankind. But he has not abandoned his plan or his people. Noah is not just a particular individual in the world, one who perhaps lives a more righteous life than others, but as has been revealed to us in God's word here, he is the line through whom the Messiah is coming. God preserves this line. His plan is intact. His favor towards his people continues. Not even the widespread sin of the entire human race in rebellion against God was enough to cause God to abandon his plan or his purpose. God's promises are unbreakable. He has a plan to redeem his people. He's told us what that plan is, and that plan will not be abandoned or thwarted. And so what, what do we do with this truth this morning? Christian, what a great comfort is ours in knowing that in our fight against our own sin, God has not and will not abandon us. What a great comfort is ours in knowing that God keeps his promises, that he has kept this promise in particular. The offspring of Eve, the promised child, was born in Bethlehem. And he perfectly fulfilled the promises of God to destroy the power of Satan and of death. The one promised in Genesis 3.15 was sent and has done all that was promised of him. He did not abandon his people. He did not fail in his promises. And we stand today waiting upon God to complete the work he has begun. There are promises that yet remain. Jesus Christ is coming again. And when he does, he will set up thrones for judgment and make his people perfect forever. Unbeliever, you stand condemned by God's word, not by me this morning, not by Christian tradition, not by a community of people who think that they are better than everybody else. Whatever 
may be keeping you from believing this truth, hear this, God in his word condemns sinners. There is no escaping from that reality apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus has actually received in himself the just wrath of God, which sin deserves. And this is the the beauty and glory of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that salvation in God's word is not a matter of God deciding to pretend that this person didn't sin. This person doesn't deserve judgment. God is perfectly just, and so he must execute justice against all sin. And he's done that in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who willingly took upon himself the sin and guilt of his people, received the justice of God against that sin in himself and put it away. This is held out to all who will believe. God promised to send his Son to do this, and he kept his promise. Now he promises that his Son is coming again to judge the world. And only those who belong to him by faith and repentance will escape that wrath. You can trust God to keep his promises. His promises to judge as well as his promises to save. So this morning as we we step back a bit and consider this passage, the description of sin, the description of God's reaction to sin, his response against it. But even in the midst of that, that implied judgment There's the implied salvation. We talked about it often. Judgment and salvation in God are one and the same act with two outcomes. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was a judgment against our sin and a salvation of his people. And on the last day when Christ comes again and sets up thrones for judgment, that judgment will mean our final and full, perfect salvation forever, but it will also mean the judgment of God, justice against all of those who are in rebellion against him. And so Christian, in light of this morning's passage, what what do we do? We take sin seriously. We flee from sin and pursue righteousness. We remember who we are in Christ. We cling to the promises of God that he's coming again to complete all that he has promised the promises of a God who will never fail us. And we give thanks for our salvation continually. And we tell those who are lost about the good news of salvation, the deliverance that God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Unbeliever this morning, Scripture condemns you for your sin, even as we all were once condemned. And the sentence against you is death and God's wrath forever. But God has provided an escape. Trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. And God promises that he will deliver you from that wrath and judgment. Let's pray.